Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. Now a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down and saying to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. Just push pause right there. Uh, this week I met a friend uh, for a little lunch appointment at a local restaurant. And uh, when I placed my order, they had their hand sanitizer on the counter. And so now as a part of a habit or whatever, like I, I paid for it, I signed it, and then I used the hand sanitizer. And as soon as it started to come out in a very thin liquid form, I realized uh, that I had made a grave mistake. Because I realized quickly, I started to recognize this is not the good stuff. This is the stuff that reeks like tequila. This is the stuff you, it sticks with you all day and people judge you for the rest of the day because they think you started your morning off in a way that they didn't. And, and it was the reminder of like, if 2020 taught us something, it's that not all hand sanitizers are created equally. But what it did, unfortunately, the smell more than anything of that experience is it, it took me back and my mind very quickly went back to early quarantine when all of us were using the tequila smelling hand sanitizer because we couldn't find it anywhere and our local distilleries shifted gears quickly with their business model and capitalized on it. But it was a year ago that we were about to roll into Easter and our whole nation and really the world around us was pretty crippled by this mysterious virus and the fear that came with it. It was really early, think about it a year ago in the COVID lockdown when, when there was so much that was very unknown about this virus. We didn't know is this SARS or anthrax. I mean, it was just becoming clear that this is not Ebola, but we don't think it's like a common seasonal cold or flu virus. No one seemed to know for sure what we were dealing with. And my own family was in lockdown mode as well. It wasn't just that uh, our nation was, but this affected each of our households specifically. And, and so in our home, we were pretty isolated during this stretch. I was like many of you, the heroic one in the family who would leave once a week to the grocery store and come home with the spoils of war and want to rip my shirt as I came in the door and let out a or something because I felt like I'd been out on conquest because I found milk or something. And I had a group message going with some of our neighbors where we were sharing hot tips on like where, which grocery stores had meats or which grocery stores had toilet paper. And, and all of us were in full survival mode. And, and I don't know about you, but in our family, we were wiping down everything that came in from a grocery store or the market uh, because we just didn't know what, what is this virus and how long is it going to last on these surfaces. And for me, as I thought about it this week, I was like, wow, it actually feels kind of like a lifetime ago now that this started. And all of those emotions and the, the pressure and the weight, what it, what it felt like to have so much be so unknown. And then thinking back, it, it felt a little silly that... that so many people stockpiled toilet paper, and I'm not judging you, it's the rest of us didn't have the chance to find enough to stockpile. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, though, because I, I think that this virus has been absolutely brutal, so please don't misunderstand me. This virus has affected people socially and emotionally, 
uprooting support systems, and then pushing people into isolation, which is really depleting for sure, and we've learned that. And it's affected people economically with the loss of business and homes and jobs, and with those losses, a loss of internal security that a lot of people have had shaken up. And, and most tragically, for sure, there's loss of life that's gone with this, and that is tragic. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying or about to say about this virus, because it has been brutal. But imagine for a moment, what if this virus was far worse than it ended up turning out to be? And yes, it's been bad, I just gave those disclaimers. But what if the virus spread even quicker than it has? And, and what if transmission happened without rhyme or reason, where just to open your door and exit your front door and land on your porch was making you susceptible to something that was floating through the air? What if it remained active on surfaces for months or, or no one really knew it, if it just remained there until it found a new host to then to then jump into and develop and spread within? What if, what if every person who tested positive never recovered? Like, what would it be like to live somewhere where, where the decline then and all of those people who tested positive and we knew it was a death sentence, when for some of them, their decline would take place over years until finally their whole system would shut down? Like, what would it be like to live in an era of time like that, that was marked by that kind of a vicious disease where no one knew how it spread or, or no one knew or had discovered any cure for it and, and where, where no one ever recovered from it? It'd be a scary place to live. Like, if stopping the spread was, was truly a life and death matter for all of human history, it's either it's coming to an end or we take drastic measures because no one could treat it and because absolutely no one survived it. No one was healed from it. Imagine then if that's the kind of pressure and anxiety that you live under. Imagine waking up in the morning with your first potential symptom where you know this could be nothing. We've all had this in the last year. You wake up and you're like, my throat feels scratchy. You brewed your coffee and you're sniffing it going, I don't smell it. Why, why do I not smell it? Is this my head? Do you smell this? It could be nothing, but you brace yourself for your worst nightmare. If you tested positive, in, in, the, in the fictitious scenario that we're entering into, if you tested positive, you knew that you'd leave home immediately and be isolated never to return because this is incurable and this is a death sentence. The mental gymnastics would begin, I think, probably for all of us of when that first potential symptom arrived, do I wait it out because I don't want to go get tested in a failed system where, where I might get a false positive and then I'm going to live out my life in obscurity away from my family. Do I wait it out to see if I really have this? Or do I make the hard decision of going to get tested because I don't want to leave my loved ones vulnerable if I actually have this plague? Okay, now think about the, the kinds of anxieties and fears that you'd experience living in a world like that provide a little bit of the taste, I think, of anxiety and fear that people dealt with over the threat of what this man was living in that we just read about, over the threat of leprosy in the ancient world. You see, this story of Jesus and his interaction with the leper is a story about Jesus and the walking dead, which is not a reference to some TV sitcom or something. Like, it's actually the way that the rabbis wrote about people who had leprosy. That's what they called them, was the walking dead or the living dead. In ancient cultures, they viewed the leper as someone who carried the curse of God on their heads. They were cursed by God, they believed, with a death sentence because they had done something wrong because of their sin. 
Even in the Old Testament, you have a few examples that maybe some people would have pointed at, like Cain, or there's another individual who's a member of Pharaoh's household. There's even Aaron, who's there with Moses, who for God to show his power, he puts his hand in his cloak and pulls it out, and he has leprosy, and everybody gasps and runs, and then he puts it back in, and he's healed. And others taught that the leper was someone who is punished and forced to live in a form of purgatory, to live out their life in this, this condemned state as a punishment. A leper was viewed as a living corpse. So it's one commentator that I read, he put it. I, I liked that term, the living corpse, because he had no hope of regaining life again. And because someone coming into contact with you defiled themselves in the same way that they defiled themselves by interacting with a dead body in that culture. It wasn't just a ceremonial defilement, though. They realized, I'm rolling the dice dice on my health, and they were afraid that they were making themselves unclean, potentially in their health, physically unclean. And so by law, you were required to keep your distance. If you were a leper like this man that interacts with Jesus, by law, as someone got near to you, you were commanded that you have to yell out, unclean, unclean, that for your whole life, that's what your new identity is, just unclean. Now, I'm not a zombie movie fan at all, actually. Sci-fi in and of itself is not my my desired genre, but... uh, when you think of a zombie, the idea of a zombie, the, the look of one in your typical thriller is not that far removed from the look of a leper, even if you just did a Google search in the 21st century. Someone with open sores and, and missing fingers, that their hands become frozen and crippled and almost, almost look more like claws, that, that they become badly disfigured, their eyes glazing over from infection with no sense of pain because of the damage it does to their neurological system. It's not just the look of a zombie, but it's even the very idea of a zombie, a dead man walking, being alive, but who you once were died long ago. You're just a shell of yourself waiting for a final death. This is the gruesome reality that someone who was plagued with leprosy, that the reality that they lived in. I want you to see this morning real quick three things about this story. And the first is for us to slow down to really see and understand this man's plight. Because for us as 21st century readers, we have a hard time, I think, entering into the emotion of this story the way that the first century audience would have naturally read this story or heard this story about Jesus and felt it so deeply. And so I want to slow down and do that with you, to to think and feel the things that we're meant to think and feel with this amazing encounter that Jesus has with this man who's the walking dead. It's not just his plight, but I want you to see then our reflection in this story, because there's an illustration here. This isn't just an example of what Jesus would do in healing individuals. This is an illustration of Jesus' miraculous work inside each of us, the walking dead. But then the other thing is I want you to see Jesus' secrecy in this story, and that's how we'll wrap up and then transition into communion. Now, you might be surprised to know that, that leprosy isn't just a thing that's relegated to the past. In the 21st century, we refer to someone who has leprosy as having Hansen's disease, which was named after the scientist who discovered the bacteria that's the cause of the disease. And then after that discovery in the 1870s, it later went on to then develop a year-long regimen of antibiotics that can help to treat someone who has this disease. And although the biblical term that's used for leper probably accounts for a much broader spectrum of diseases than just Hansen's, we now look at it very differently than the ancient world used to. 
And we also know that leprosy, Hansen's disease, it attacks the nervous system, damaging, badly damaging nerve cells. It also attacks then cartilage in your body, leaving a person badly crippled and deformed, and it causes permanent, irreparable damage to your skin and your nervous system, to your limbs and to your eyes. It's not necessarily that this is a, a flesh-eating disease, it does, however, leave lesions and sores and cause swelling and, and disfigurement to take place. And because of the attack on your nervous system, you lose feeling and numbness then sets in, which leads then to infection and injuries. The CDC website says this about it. It says, if left untreated, the nerve damage can result in crippling of hands and feet, paralysis and blindness. Now, most modern cases today, they take place typically in third world countries. There are some estimates that say in India alone, there are still 700 leper colonies. In 2010, China had given an estimate that they had seven or 600 state-run leper colonies still in existence. If you Google and you could find the documentary, there's, there's the remnants of a leper colony on the, the forbidden island of Molokai in Hawaii that still has the remnant traces of the colony that once lived there with a few individuals still living there. Even in the continental U.S., it wasn't until 1995 that the last uh, facility was closed that was a mandated treatment center for someone who had leprosy that I think was in Louisiana. Their HOA party, I'm sure their HOA group threw quite the party when they finally shut that down. I can't imagine having that as your near neighbor. It wasn't long ago, though, in parts of Europe where if you were diagnosed with this illness, you could be pronounced legally dead so that your estate could be divided and liquidated even though you were still alive because it was viewed as such a death sentence. In 1995, the World Health Organization estimated that there are between two and three million people permanently disabled from this disease. And the same organization estimates that in the past 20 years, 15 million people have been cured worldwide from leprosy. It wasn't until the 1940s that people were beginning to develop effective treatments. That's when they first appeared. And it wasn't until the 80s that the disease was successfully being diagnosed and treated. Now, for us, there's no need to fear. My goal is not to freak you out because this is, this is something that plagued the first century world and the ancient world far more than it does us. We know what they didn't know about how this is not highly contagious whereas they believed that it was. In fact, in Leviticus, it references that if you were a leper, you were to put a covering over your mouth that you basically wear a mask. In fact, some research now suggests that about four, or 95% of the world's population is immune to this bacteria. And so many of us are in, we're invincible to this, even as a potential thing. And honestly, if you just fight the urge to ever uh, lick an armadillo, you're probably going to be fine because it seems like most people today pick them up from armadillos and just one more reason not to play with them because they look like death anyways. And... <laughs> or a, a word of advice from a rabbi whose teachings were recorded for us in the Talmud. Here's what he said about leprosy. Rabbi Yohanan, he's about to become your second favorite uh, rabbi from the first century. He said, uh, for what reason are there no lepers in Babylonia? And then he answers his own question. The reason they don't have leprosy there is because they eat beets, drink beer, and bathe in the river of the Euphrates, all of which are good for the health of the body. So according to your new second favorite rabbi, drinking beer is good for the body and fends off leprosy completely. And so that's your inoculation. Uh, you can get your vaccine at your local store. But leprosy in Jesus' day was a death sentence. For the leper, life changed like absolutely in an instant. You'd wake up with a single little blemish on your skin and it would be terrifying 
Because you'd go to the priests who are these untrained medical professionals. They're not using science to back up their findings. They're looking at an ancient text in Leviticus 13 to compare different kinds of descriptions of sores in order to decide whether or not you have either a harmless skin irritation or lethal leprosy. It was you entering very vulnerably into a flawed system to find out what your fate would be. And Mark uses, I think, this as an example. This story is an example of someone that Jesus radically touches and heals because he says he's healing multitudes. Now, let me give you an example of an amazing one. But he also, I think, gives us this, this story as a portrait of ourselves and our own deep need for Jesus. We're not just meant to see the leper's plight here, but our own reflection in his story is meant to be staring back at us because leprosy really is a picture and a type of sin. Not that the person with leprosy is is being judged by God because of sin, but it becomes an image for us of what sin does for us. You see, leprosy begins beneath the surface of the skin, just like sin begins beneath the surface where no one sees, but where we allow it to, to be harbored in our hearts, it grows and it spreads. Yes, it starts small, leprosy and sin do. One spot, one blemish, just like sin, one compromise. It's, it's just harmless flirting. We, we can come up with excuses. It's just pornography. It's just cutting a corner. It's just a lack of integrity. It can start small, these little decisions, but it spreads quickly and absolutely overtakes your body. And then what it does, the byproduct of it, is it forces solitude. And that's what sin does. It divides families and homes, and and you're pushed from the home with leprosy, separated from loved ones, separated even from access to God because you're removed from the community and the synagogue and the temple. And sin does the same thing. It brings separation and death. And, And leprosy, it stinks. These open wounds and sores that that, that create a foul odor for those who surround you, literally. And in the same way, sin affects those around us as a terrible, nasty byproduct for those who are close to us. And then it attacks your nervous system, where you're no longer feeling things. Think of what the Bible says about sin, that sin will sear your conscience. That, That when we rebel against God, when we harden our heart to him, at some point, our conscience is seared so that we're past feeling. So when the Spirit of God gently nudges us or or calls us to the carpet or fires his warning shot after us, that that we're immune to it because we've so hardened our hearts to him. I've read about individuals who were lepers who reported that they would lose fingers in the middle of the night because they'd fall asleep. They have no feeling in their body left. And they'd lose fingers because rodents would come and chew them off. Or they'd be badly disfigured because they'd lay sleeping too close to the fire and roll over against it. And they're not feeling any pain sensation. And so they're, they're slowly decaying in a way that they'd never intended because they're past feeling. That's what scripture says sin does to you and I. You see, this is a lethal disease in the first century world. Without remedy, it's incurable until Jesus shows up. And that's what sin is. We can think of sin sometimes and feel like we're going to manage it. It's just beneath the surface. It's just these small compromises in my life. But we have to be honest with ourselves that it will absolutely swallow us whole and destroy the lives of others around us unless we turn to Jesus. He alone is the one who can reach out and touch and make whole and well again and bring restoration where there's brokenness because of sin and bring restoration in families and in homes like he'll do for this man by healing him. Listen, it was usually a 10-year process of suffering that someone would go through once they were injected with this lethal virus, and then their body would fail them, they'd die. 
And most, they die probably from a secondary infection that developed because of their leprosy, or they die from starvation or malnutrition because they're off left to fend for themselves in a weakened state. Hear me on this, far worse for the leper, I think, than the physical suffering was the solitude that had to come with it. Because leprosy could not be healed in the ancient world. They were truly the walking dead. So in the day and age that that Jesus was living in and interacting with this gentleman in, every time that a person would see a blemish on their skin, their heart would sink. Do I keep it hidden and concealed and wait it out to see if this just goes away, if 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 it resolves itself, or do I go to be inspected? In the course of a day, your life could dramatically change discovering a spot on your skin in the morning and by the afternoon being ripped from your family with tears being shed and fear overcoming you going, this is the end of my life as I've done it. Never kissing your spouse goodbye, never embracing your children again before leaving, forced into solitude to live now in a leper colony outside of the city where they cover their own mouths, where they dig through the trash heap to find their next meal, where they'd stay 50 paces away from other people, always yelling out, unclean, unclean, forever living with a broken connection between your community and yourself, between your family and yourself, between your God and yourself. That first stain was like a a venomous stain because that first stain carried with it the lethal venom of the plague that would have plagued you physically and it injected instantly a lethal dose of terror, knowing that you'd never be able to shake this, you'd never recover. Listen, make no mistake, leprosy was this agonizingly painful death, but it brought about a swift and immediate social and emotional death with it. That's what people were so afraid of more than anything else, because your new home and community are the ones who were diagnosed before you in the leper colony with this terrible disease where they're now further along in its process and its process in its destructive pathway than you are. So being with them, waking up with them on that next day, surrounded by the stench and face of death was a constant grim reminder of what you had lost and what your future will look like as your health would continue to decline and as you would soon begin to resemble these people who have lost so much. We shouldn't allow the, the reality of this man's plight, his situation to be lost on us as 21st century readers, because this is jarring this moment for those who first heard the story. I mean, consider what this man has been through. It's traumatic and heartbreaking that he had a lot that was taken from him because of this, what began as just a harmless spot on his skin. Luke, the gospel writer, this is recorded in three different gospels. Luke is one of them. Remember, Luke is a physician and a gospel writer. He said that the man was full of leprosy. He's giving you the image that this isn't a guy who's walking up to Jesus going, I just found the one spot. That this is a guy who leprosy has already plagued his whole, the whole of his body. It's already uh, just stripped his system of its health and well-being. That, that the hellish attack had long ago set in and he's suffering from the byproduct of that. And when he approaches Jesus, there was no mistaking that this is not a healthy guy who, who, who just is starting on this pathway. No, this is a guy who's long since began his journey down this hellish destructive pathway who approached Jesus. Now, it's crazy. Like, why does he approach Jesus? Or how does he even know anything about Jesus? Matthew's gospel is the other one that tells us the story. And his story, this leper story, comes right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount, 
where Jesus is surrounded by a multitude, Matthew 5, withdraws from them to teach his disciples about the kind of kingdom culture that he's establishing. And when he comes down from the mountain surrounded by a multitude, that's when Matthew says that the leper saw him. And you'll notice he doesn't even address him by name, but he saw something in him that he believed this might be the one. This might be my way out. And we assume maybe he waits for a, a slight break in the crowd where he sprints his way towards Jesus, breaking the law of Moses and putting his life in danger by doing so. And for this man, if tears had not begun to fall, uh, when he ran towards hope again, towards Jesus, then I'm confident that tears were being shed as he crumbled in front of Jesus on his knees and his trembling voice was heard saying just simply, if you're willing, you can make me clean again. For us, we read that idea of make me clean again. We go, oh yeah, free of infection. To make him clean again means to go back home. To make him clean again means he's no longer just marked as unclean and that defiled, nasty thing that we want separation from. To be clean again means restoration between him and everything his former life had meant. It, it means restoration and hope and a second chance at, at love and life and happiness and hope. It means a second chance at, at re-engaging with his God even. To come within 50 paces of another human being was to risk being stoned to death and then being burned on the spot because they wouldn't even want to drag your body aside. This was a suicide mission and this guy knew it. The Talmud, it records what the rabbis of Jesus' day, what they thought of the lepers. And what it records for us is their arguments about how far was far enough to keep them away from us. It's one guy recorded saying, I, I think four meters is sufficient spacing from a leper. But it's another guy chiming in saying, I think a hundred uh, meters is at least what's necessary. If there's any sign of wind or a slight wind that's blowing in the air, we need to keep them as far away as we can. Or, or another rabbi, it's recorded of him that he saw one coming towards him and he went out and led the charge with stones and stoned the man and then yelled at him, go to your place and do not stink up the rest of creation. And here's Jesus, the rabbi, that treats him so differently than every other rabbi leader of that day did. Jesus, it says, he touched him, which is beautiful. Because that word to touch in Greek, it, it means to fasten oneself to, to adhere to something, to cling to. The imagery is that Jesus didn't just reach out and gently touch with hesitation or trepidation but that he reached out and grabbed hold of that man as if he wasn't going to let him go again. I mean, think about this. When was the last time someone probably looked at this man in the eye with compassion instead of disdain? When's the last time someone reached, a healthy person reached their hand out and placed it on his shoulder and touched him in this way? No one did that because they believed that his disease was highly contagious. People wouldn't do something like this. It was risking life for them. It was even breaking the law. It, it would be viewed as, as sharing. Well, I grew up uh, in the early 90s with a kid who was HIV positive because of blood transfusion that he received that was tainted. And I remember watching him clear a room with a sneeze. I remember watching families grab their kids and run away and put distance between he and their kids because of what was unknown and the fear that existed. That's what this guy lived with, that death sentence. And Jesus looked him in the eye, reached out, and touched him. Remember, remember what he says. If you're willing, I believe that you can make me clean. 
And Jesus responds full of emotion saying, I'm willing be cleansed. And now again, our English translation here, I feel like it sells this short because the idea of willingness sounds like, it sounds like Jesus kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, well, why not? I'm, I'm willing. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do this for you. Because when we think of an act of our will, being willing to do something, it almost feels like compliance. And that Jesus is saying, I'll comply with your request. Like, yeah, okay, you broke up the crowd. There's a big scene. I'll comply. I'll do this for you. But the word that's used here carries the heart with it, not just the will. It's my heart to do this for you. It's my pleasure to do this for you. One commentator says it this way. He says, this word would tell us that what Jesus says to him is, I desire it with all my heart. That that's the response he gave him. Think about it. Just like my sin, Jesus says, regardless of how ugly and lethal it is or can be, I will willingly and even joyfully take it from you. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, that, that we look unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus stretched a hand out my direction to touch and cleanse me by stretching out both hands, both arms on a cross. Nobody else wanted this man. Jesus did. He touched him. Nobody else wants my sin or to deal with my brokenness, but Jesus touched it and took it. He even paid for it. You see, this story is, is a desperate, desperate man's prayer, but, but this is the story of the love, not just the power of an almighty God, but the love of an almighty God displayed for us. Okay, before we move on to that final thought that I mentioned about Jesus' secrecy in this moment, I, I just want to mention one other thing. In verse 41, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion. And if you have an NIV Bible, it's translated that Jesus was indignant, which is very different than the idea of being moved with compassion. But is it really telling us that Jesus was angry here? And if he's angry in this moment, if that's part of what the, 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 the guys who were around in that moment picked up on was, was that a part of Jesus' emotions were anger, then, then why would he be angry? Or who or what was he angry with? I mean, if anger is what, what, a part of what Jesus experienced for a moment of time here with this interaction, well, was he angry at the man for breaking the law and coming to him? Well, I don't think so, because he reached out and, and touched him and healed him and, and was so gracious to him. Was he angry at the crowd who probably started to respond by pulling back and lifting stones who had caused this guy to live out in solitude? Is he angry at them? Well, I, I don't think so. I believe if he's angry, he's angry at the effects of the fallen world, at the effects that they had had on this man. I think that Jesus was struck when he looked at this man and realized all that was lost, that, that it hit him kind of like it hits us when we enter this man's shoes. That what Jesus saw in him represented a family who had suffered loss, represented a community that had grieved his departure. When Jesus saw it, Jesus, I think, was devastated and angry. This is what sin has done. This is what rebellion has cost them. This is how bad it's gotten. But for Jesus, I think he deeply cared about the one who suffered because of that destructive disease. And this man, he possessed so much faith, risking life and limb just to get to Jesus, believing that he was his only hope, kneeling down in front of Jesus, begging just for a healing touch praying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I love that faith. 
Some people choke on this and say, we should never leave the door open of a, if you're willing, you can do this. We should always just pray in faith and power past that, saying, God, you, you are going to do this, and I'm not going to crack open that door because that's unbelief. I would argue that there's more faith involved in saying, you can do this, but implying in that statement that I'm not going anywhere if you don't. That I came to you because I know that you can, but even if you don't, I still believe you're worth coming to for this touch. This is Jesus in the garden praying, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will be done. That's the reality of this man's situation. Listen, some of us have this terrible tendency to think that I really need to get my act together before going to God for help. And and may I say, that's not just for the first time we came to Jesus. I would say that's possible today. You may have been following Jesus for an awfully long time, and and, and you still today are stopping and going, before I go back to him, though, I need to get my act together before going to him for, for help. It would be like, though, think about it, saying I need to get healthy before going and seeing a physician. It makes no sense. And the story here proves it to us. It proves how God deals with us. He makes the leper healed and whole, and he makes the unclean clean and restored. See this man's dilemma, his plight, the tragic reality he was facing. But see your own story here, your life, reflecting back at you as you view his story, because this is a story about a desperate person whose only hope in prayer, because of what sin had done to me, my only hope in prayer is the love, not just the power, but the love that the almighty God has for me. That is what I have in Jesus. Okay, here's where we wrap up. Jesus then looks at him and says, verse 44, see that you tell no one, but go and show yourselves to the priests as a test, sorry, for for them to do the things of, of the cleansing that are commanded by Moses, he says, as a testimony to them. Okay, think about this, Why? Jesus had healed him, so why does he need to go and and perform these things to go do this ritual of cleansing? Although Jesus had healed him, the whole community was yet to accept him back. And he would not be accepted back into the community until the priest had examined him and given him a clean bill of health. Even if he showed up looking whole and well again, the community would still be too terrified to allow him back in. I mean, if Jesus had healed a blind man, it was easy to let him back around everyone because, look, he can see again. If he healed a cripple, look, he can walk again. But to heal a leper, what if it's still that lethal thing is still beneath the surface in you? We can't risk that. The the leper needed to keep the command of Moses not to be healed, but to be pronounced clean socially, to reenter the community. It's what was best for this man. And Jesus said it was also a sign to the priests. It was what was best for the individual, but it was also going to provide a sign or a testimony to the priests and those who'd see it. And so this man would begin a 90-mile walk back towards Jerusalem from the area around the Galilee. A long walk alone, but a walk that felt probably unlike any other walk he had ever been on before because he had hope again. He had peace again. He had health again. Only one leper had ever been healed before that we know of. And it was because of God's miraculous power in the story of Elijah. Remember Naaman, that military leader comes and he goes and washes in the water and is miraculously healed. And it displayed the power of the God of Israel on display because only God could reverse the sentence of death. There was no help, no hope, no help beside the God of Israel intervening. That's what they all believed. 
And Jesus looked at the leper and said, show yourself to the priests as a testimony unto them. See, don't just take it from me that this is a picture of our sin and a savior in Jesus. The Bible itself uses it this way. In fact, in Leviticus 14, and if you want to turn there, you can. I'll just tell you to read it later. But Leviticus 13 and 14 describe two different things. Leviticus 13 gives uh, the grid that you'd be examined through if you were suspected of having leprosy. Now, thankfully, it gives a couple of caveats in there. Like in verse 40, it says, as for the man whose hair has fallen off his head, he's bald, but he's clean. It's not leprosy that's his issue. Um, so some of us can breathe deeply. But the next chapter, chapter 14, gives instructions. What do you do if someone's cleansed from leprosy, if they've been healed? And it all began with this, this interesting examination that would take place of the individual. If they find him clean, then they would take two birds. I'll do this quickly, but you can read Leviticus 14 later. Two birds, they'd kill one of them, and blood and water would then, from the bird, the blood and water would be poured into a vessel. Think of blood and water being poured out. Where else do we see that? We see it on the cross. And then a branch... Would, would be connected to a stick and a cord would be wrapped around it to make, in a sense, a paintbrush that would be dipped into that vessel and then sprinkled onto the leper. The blood of an innocent substitute would cover him. And then they would declare him clean as we are declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus applied on the doorposts of our hearts. And then that second bird that had been covered in the blood as well as the leper would be released. One life given so that another could be set free. And then for a week, the leper, who had just been pronounced clean, he could leave the leper colony, but he could not yet re-engage with the community. He'd wait an additional week, and then he'd be evaluated a second time at the end of that week before rejoining his former home. And again, if he was found clean and healed, they would pronounce it loudly, and then they'd get the blood of an innocent lamb that would be shed for him. And they'd wipe his ear. They'd wipe his thumb and his toe because previously every place he went, everything he touched, every relationship he had was defiled because of what was true about him. But it's no longer defiled because he's been washed with blood, because he's been declared right and righteous, clean and restored again. And then oil would be poured on his head, which is something that was only done for prophets and priests and kings who'd be anointed in that manner. And now there's one other would be anointed that way. It's this healed, restored leper. And the amazing thing is, the reason he'd be anointed in the way of a prophet, priest, and king is because Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, had had a crazy encounter with him and touched and healed and restored him. Jesus tells him, go to the priest, do as Moses commanded, as a sign to them. And the sign was only God could do this, and there he is in front of us. Jesus got among us. For the priests and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, healing a leper was, was on the same uh, line of thinking as, as a crazy thought of raising someone from the dead. It was considered in the same breath as, as raising someone from the dead. I believe that this was not just an act of mercy on Jesus' part in the life of one individual. I believe this was an extension of mercy and grace to a whole Jewish religious system. Because when some guy walks in saying, I'm a leper, and people are now following him saying, yeah, yeah, and we're his family, and we know it's true. He was. He's been gone from the family, and even if he has, if he has fingers or digits or things that have been lost, there, there's health restored in his body, but I don't know that fingers are growing back, but there, there's something about him that they're believing his testimony, and then the priest goes and brushes the dust off the old Leviticus chapter 14 scroll, and he rolls it out, and his eyes are wide, and everyone gathers because they go, we never thought we'd have a chance to do this to proclaim a leper healed and whole again. 
And as they walk through it with the man, give him a week, they've got a week to consider, oh my goodness, could this have happened? It tells us that the guy told everyone who did it, it was Jesus. Could this have happened? Could this Jesus of Nazareth, this new teacher, could he have done this? I think that this was an extension of God's mercy and grace to a whole system that would have looked in at this man and gone, how is this possible? Mark provides more than just an example of the kinds of people that Jesus healed. He presented a portrait for us of our own deep need for Jesus. It was several years ago at an Easter celebration that Lindsay and I were standing next to each other, and we had someone we really love with us who doesn't know Jesus. And, and at the end of that gathering, there was an invitation to, to repent of your sin and choose to follow Jesus and express faith. And, and I looked over and saw that our friend was, was really emotional and crying and and I thought, wow, God has really touched her heart. And, and what she said, uh, I guess, demonstrated that maybe that wasn't the case. She, she just looked at everyone who went forward, and she looked at us and said, it's just so good for all these sad people that they found something like this. And I thought, oh, my goodness. This is not about sad people being made happy. This is about those of us who recognize we have a death sentence that exists in us, and we've got one hope, and it's Jesus. We have to reframe at times our thinking of who Jesus is for us. He is the Savior who grabbed the arm of a leper whose destructive pattern of this disease that was rampant in him had, had, had just ruined everything, that, that we are that person who has that same plague existing in us called sin and rebellion. And Jesus reaches out to touch us, but to do that, he reached out both arms on a cross to demonstrate his love for us. That's what this story tells me. Now, undoubtedly, one of the reasons that Jesus tells him, hey, keep this on the DL, is because he was making a way for this man not just to be healed, but to be restored back into his life and community where he belonged. But, but you need to know this isn't the only time that Jesus will do this. Tell someone, keep it on the DL. He's previously done this, of, of the guy who's... The, the demon-possessed guy at the beginning of the book, I think it's this phone ringing, but it's done now. No, it's not. Almost done. Um, but he does this before this. He'll do this again and again after this, even as far as like the eighth chapter when all of a sudden Jesus is going to strictly warn the people that uh, his disciples, when they're like, we know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. He strictly warns them, don't tell anybody, keep it on the DL. And the reason Jesus does that is in regard to timing. And this is where it connects to today. Today is Palm Sunday, and the day that the timing will shift, the day that Jesus will say, my time has come, the day that he'll stop saying, keep it on the DL, don't tell people just yet, is the day where Jesus will publicly receive praise, the praise of a king. Where in Luke's gospel, the religious leaders come and say, you've got to forbid your disciples from doing this, because they understood that Jesus was receiving a king's welcome as he entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. You'd enter into a city on a white horse if you came in conquest, if you came to fight. You'd come in on a donkey if you came to bring peace. And it's imagery that's even picked up from the Old Testament. It's also imagery when, when Jehu, he becomes the king over Israel to replace these terrible leaders that had been in existence and in power before that. And the people threw branches and their clothes down before Jehu. And they made him their new king, believing this is God's provision of the right ruler, the right kind of king that we need. And so for the people to do this is their way of saying, we believe that you are the right kind of guy to lead us. But spoiler alert, you know that their chants go from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify, crucify very quickly. 
Because Jesus didn't enter that city to overthrow the Romans or a system that was oppressive. He came to strip Satan of all authority and power he had by suffering and dying. Jesus would be crowned a king, but not in the way that people had envisioned, because by the end of the week, he'd have a king's crown placed on his head and beat into place and a robe put on his back and a sign above his head saying, Jesus, the king, the king of the Jews. There will come a day in Jesus' life where he will no longer say, hey, keep it on the DL, now's not the time. He's going to say, this is the time, today is the day. And that's the day we're headed towards this week. The day where we remember that Jesus, our king, suffered like the lowest of servants, a slave, with the worst of treatment for rebellion. He took our place on a cross so that we could be set free. He was the bird whose life was poured out, the blood and water that was washed us clean so that we could go and be free again, so that we would be redeemed, restored, and put back into right relationships again. This is what Jesus has done for us.